In the name of God, who is love, our beloved, and the begetter of love. Amen. I feel like I've been a silent participant on that hillside 2,000 years ago for most of my life. Sitting down on the grassy slope there, along with all those people who, as the afternoon was drawing on, were waiting patiently for Jesus to begin talking to them. I was there for the first time as a young kid. When I looked into the Bible I was given, a big 19th century one. There was an illustration in it of the disciples going about with large rush baskets, now that everyone had had their fill, collecting what remained of the five loaves of barley bread and two fishes. They seemed to be having a hard time lifting those baskets. They were so full of food. It's funny, but I remember this hillside image coming unbidden to my mind when I saw pictures many years later of the crowds wet with the rain sitting on the gentle hills where the Woodstock Festival was being held, waiting expectantly for the next act to begin. Well, when I was very young, it didn't occur to me to ask questions about the feeding of the 5,000. It was in a book, and for that reason, it happened. In the same way that Dick and Jane stories happened. And Macbeth, when my father read it to me. Perhaps I was an unusually uncritical reader, or maybe, as William Wordsworth said, I was still full of the magic of childhood when the trailing clouds of glory came from God who is our home, where heaven lies about us in our infancy. The next time I was conscious of visiting that hillside in Israel was when I was in graduate school and feeling the full icy blast of the critical study of the scriptures. It was about time I'd applied such criticism to the scriptures because I'd studied poetry and learned to dissect each word and image, laying bare the bones of what I'd once believed was called poetic inspiration. And I'd learned from the study of history that things are seldom what they seem. So I trained a critical eye on the familiar scene of the feeding of the 5,000. How do we know that there were 5,000? And why the precision about five barley loaves and two small fish? And how in the world did so many get fed with so little and still have leftovers? Why even did this happen? I kept drilling down into the text, hoping to reach the truth of it. It would have been more rational and certainly simpler to see this story as a pious fable, perhaps conveying something beautiful about Jesus, but lacking any historical reality. Of course, it was an awkwardness 
that such a miracle should happen that lay behind my relentless investigations. And I was so troubled by all this that I wound up writing a thesis on the problem. And after 200 torturous pages, came to the conclusion that you can't use historical facts to prove statements of belief. And that if you weren't already willing to believe, you wouldn't be convinced by any number of miracles. I learned this last truth quite poignantly from a parishioner. You see, he and I like to spar over passages like this Sunday's Gospel. He'd say it was a miracle and therefore he couldn't believe it, or anything else in the Bible for that matter, except for the fine moral sentiments of the Sermon on the Mount, just like Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> His daughter became very ill. It seemed almost certain that the three-year-old would die, but she didn't, and everyone said it was a miracle. Even her father, my sparring partner, said it was a miracle. But did that change him when it came to gaining a faith in Christianity? Not in the least. He was perhaps less aggressively confrontational than he'd been, but it didn't lead him to any comfort in the Christian faith or in any other. Because the family moved away a couple of years later, I never had the chance to see if a religious sentiment blossomed later in his life. Perhaps it did, for all I know. As Cooper's hymn puts it, God works in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. For a long time then, my understanding of stories like the feeding of the 5,000 remained pretty much the same. I was comfortable separating the story with its awkward improbability and strangeness from my belief in Jesus' boundless love in feeding all those people, his limitless God-given ability to provide a wondrous abundance, not only on that hillside long ago, but everywhere. And that in him, was such an overflowing of divine goodness that even his touch could bring healing or the hem of his garment. And I suppose I could have remained in this state for the rest of my ministry, indeed, for the rest of my life. For if that's where God wanted me to remain, that's where I would have been content to stay. But slowly, a change started to take place. For a very long time, I was unaware of what was going on deep within me, unobserved by my conscious beliefs. On retreats, I surprised myself becoming quite content to spend the whole of my meditation time before the altar in the presence of the reserved sacrament. In churches, where the sacrament of the Holy Communion is kept for emergencies or for contemplation, you can tell where it's reserved by the presence of a small container called an ombre, recessed into the wall of the sacristy. A light burning near it lets you know the elements of the Holy Communion are present there. 
Well, I didn't really know why I was content to be doing this, but there I was, and that was good enough for me. And then one afternoon, while I was at my accustomed place in the chapel, it was a particularly hot and humid day, I remember, and I was, found it hard to concentrate or even stay awake. I became aware that while I'd experienced Christ's presence in every communion, every time I broke the bread or consecrated the wine, this time, well, it was as if Christ had stepped away from his hiddenness in the wafers and wine. And I was having a direct awareness of the presence of Christ himself. Not in any bodily form, of course, nor did I hear anything or see anything. It's just that my perception had changed. What happens when we receive the communion at any Eucharist had happened to me simply by being present in the chapel with the sacrament and by expectantly waiting. One of the hymns we sing at the Eucharist gives words to what I was experiencing. Here, O oh my Lord, I see thee face to face. Here would I touch and handle things unseen. My understanding was moving from the aspect of the communion I could see, the wafer, the wine, to the presence of Christ who gave us this communion and is our communion. In the course of my meditations, I learned, again, for the first time, how faith, our outward sense befriending, makes our inward vision clear. I began to understand the story of the feeding of the 5,000 speaking to me in different ways. For one thing, I wasn't so worried about all those difficulties the story had presented for me earlier in my life. My focus was no longer trying to enter into a story 2,000 years old, trying to connect with the Jesus presented there. I was free to understand Christ not only feeding those hungry people on the hillside, but us at every Eucharist. We have no record of what Jesus may have said to the crowd as the food was being handed out to them, but I wonder if it wasn't much like what Jesus said to his disciples at the Last Supper when he gave them the bread and the wine. Take and eat. To those thousands on the hillside, he gave them food. To us in the communion, he gives himself. And to me, that is the greatest miracle of all. For it isn't just the needs of our present hunger, our daily bread, that he satisfies. But as the prayer of consecration in our older service puts it, through the communion, we are made one body with him, that he may dwell in us and we in him. Another way I can express the change that happens in us when we perceive the presence of the beloved through the communion comes from last Sunday's gospel with its mention of sheep. We start out as being Christ's sheep. 
But because of the intimacy we have with Christ through the Holy Communion, we cease to be sheep, knowing only how to follow him, to becoming his friends. And not just friends either, but sisters and brothers, family, kinsfolk, one body in him. And also we become part of a family greater than anyone can number of those the world over who, like us, strive to pass through things temporal that we lose not the things eternal. And those too who have gone before us down many centuries to rest in God's peace and to rise in God's glory. So now let me sum up. I tried using my own experience to remind you that what God shows you at one point in your life will change as you grow in wisdom and in truth. For the Spirit is always attentive to lead you into all the truth. And God is always desiring to lead you from the outer shell of truth to its inner kernel, from what is below to what is above, from what is of the earth, earthly, to what is from heaven, heaven. The other thing I've tried to convey is this, that you may develop a restless longing for communion with the presence of the Lord and a hope for the kind of intimacy that was beautifully expressed towards the end of the imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. For that time, when you will speak to me and I to you, my Jesus, the way a friend speaks to a friend, or a lover to a loved one, and that I may be completely joined to you, my heart one with yours, forgetting myself completely, you in me and I in you, may we become completely one. Lord Jesus. Amen.